May we turn to Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beray the Hittite. In this series that I am seeking to expound concerning Jacob, we come to this chapter which concludes by telling us that Esau married a daughter of the Hittites and that this act of his was a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. A grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now there's a relationship between the fact that he went off and married this daughter of the Hittite and the story that goes before. Usually that relationship is not recognized and the significance of it isn't seen. But the account which goes before is that Isaac had his servants go out and dig up the wells which the Philistines had filled up after Abraham died. And you have in this account a recognition of the activity of the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God. Abraham went in to occupy the land and he digged these wells so that there would be water for his herdsmen and for his flock. And Abraham prospered and the Lord blessed him. But as soon as Abraham was gone, the Philistines moved in to fill up those wells and to destroy what Abraham had done. Now, the account which we have here is at first, the servants of Isaac, under Isaac's uh, supervision, redug the wells. They wanted to undo the mischief of the Philistines. Second, they moved over and started digging some fresh wells. And when they started digging the new wells, the Philistines came in and they began to contend with them over them. And there was struggle. And they even called the wells by the names that were suggested by the Philistines or by the conflict. And uh, Isaac moved on the way until he finally dug a well that they didn't bother him about. And then we have the spectacle of the Philistines coming under Abimelech, their king, and the chief of his, uh, the captain of his army, and desiring to make a covenant with, uh, with Isaac. And we see a covenant relationship established, and as a result of the ties that were formed and the agreement which is here made between the Philistines and Isaac, Great harm, great calamity came. 
Esau married an Hittite. And you have here the three orders. First, the Philistines filling up the wells. And God's people coming in and digging them out again. Second, the Philistines opposing the digging of new wells. And God's people moving away from them and getting out and finding a place where they call it Rehoboth. And third, the Philistines come and make a covenant. And as a result of that covenant, the resistance to the Philistines and to the Hittites and to the enemies of God was broken down between Isaac and his children and the enemies of God. And as I develop these three areas of the activity of the enemies of the people of God, we will find that the same principle operates today in our relationships with the Philistines, in our relationship with those who are the enemies of God. We find this principle constantly reaffirmed all through the Old Testament, but in the 10th chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks unto the house of Israel and says, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, an everlasting kingdom. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Now let's take these three experiences. First, the redigging of the wells. After Abraham had gone, and the full impact of his prosperity and his faith and all that he did for his people was found, the enemy said, it's time for us to move in. And they sought to move in by going around and filling up the well which the herdmen had to feed the flock. Just how they went about it, how much was done at night, how much was done on other occasions, we're not told. But we're told they went in and they filled up the wells of water, which were so essential to the well-being of Abraham and his flocks and of Isaac and his flocks. And so they filled up the wells. Beloved, a flock, the herds, had to have water in order to exist. They had to have this necessity of life in order that they might dwell. And a part of the filling up of the wells was to drive the children of Abraham into another area so the Philistines could occupy some of the territory that Abraham had previously occupied. Everything that Satan wants to do to you and me is to take possession. He wants to push us over. He wants to move in and take what has already been established. And in this instance, in order to drive out the descendants of Abraham, they filled up the wells which he had digged. Now, I don't need to enlarge upon this with you today. The application of this can be made on every hand about us. The wells are being filled up. And they're being filled up with trash. They're being filled up with rock. 
They're being filled up with filth. The wells that have been digged for the watering of the flock, the wells that have been digged in order to preserve and maintain the people of God in the land, they're being filled up and they've been filled up by the Philistines, the enemies of the people of God. And if there ever was an area in the period or a period in the history of the Church of Christ when the enemy moved in to fill up the wells, you and I live in that area today. Yesterday when I was in Santa Barbara, California, they drove me about that magnificent, beautiful city which is zoned and laid out to be Spanish in its architecture and you can't build anything in Santa Barbara that isn't Spanish in some way or other. And we drove down that magnificent broad boulevard that runs into the Pacific Ocean. And you see the beauty of that great city. And this is where the fun for the Republic is. This is where Hutchinson is. And as we drove down, we saw this big church here, a beautiful big church. And they said, Dr. McIntyre, that's Bishop Pike's church. And as we looked at the church where Bishop Pike ministered or has ministered, coming down the street... Row after row were several hundreds of the hippies with their signs calling for the end of the war in Vietnam. And I never saw such a disgraceful looking company of humanity as I saw yesterday. Some of these fellows had their hair all twisted up like they'd come out of some sort of barbarism in Africa. And of course, in instance after instance, you couldn't tell the difference as to whether one of them was a boy or a girl. In fact, you get tired looking at them. You can't even figure out what sort of a situation they are. And then they told me that they have these communes. They, they have these communes. And one of our men went over and visited one of these communes. They call them communes. And here they had ten men and eight girls living together in a communal relationship. And as we saw, as I saw the breakdown of our society and saw what was happening there in that Episcopal church in that beautiful city of Santa Barbara, I said, somebody's been here doing the mischief of the Philistines. They've been in here filling up the wells. They've been in here drying up the words of God. And the effect of the apostasy can be seen in the generation that's rising about us. And what the Philistines did at the death of Abraham, they are doing in our generation. And they're doing their best to destroy the water, the living water, the true water, the water which is a well that springeth up and your thirst will never, never rise again once you partake of this water of life. And then just around the corner from that great church where the Episcopal Church holds forth in its central cathedral there in Santa Barbara, down the side street in a beautiful avenue is our Bible Presbyterian Church, an old mortuary. They, our church put an undertaker out of business. And they've taken over this place and made a beautiful church out. And in that church, I brought the message yesterday and I brought a message from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words that ye hear are not mine, but the Father's that sent me. And the only hope for the church today is that we come back again and we take this word and we read it and we expound it, we believe it and we obey it. 
And that is the only hope there is for our church and for our country today. But the Philistines have moved in. Perhaps I shouldn't move into this realm of thought, but one of these days your pastor is going to be removed from this pulpit. One of these days my influence in the different activities that I've been connected with is going to go. And the experience we had the other night has had a solemn, a solemn effect on the thinking of your, fa- of, of, of your pastor. But may I say to you, I've seen it over and over again. I see even now that Dr. Ketchum has stepped out of places of leadership in the GRB. And I see a changing taking place and some men rising up and they think they know better than Dr. Ketchum knew. And I see this thing taking place and just as sure as you're alive, The day that Dr. McIntyre moves out of this pulpit in the gracious providences of God and I'm taken away from the places where I can have some influence and my testimonies can count, there's going to rise up a little group that say we can do it better than Dr. McIntyre did it and you're going to fill up the old wells and we'll do something else. And it's that line of thought today that you people need to consider on this 10th anniversary of our coming into this beautiful place which God has given us. Don't let any Philistines, no matter how they look, how they're robed, how they're garbed, come in and fill up the wells that you and I have taken all the years today in order that we might have water and in order that we might maintain the work and the testimony of the living God. The Philistines moved in to fill up the wells which Abraham had made. And then the servants of Isaac moved in to dig them. Now it was a commendable thing for Isaac to say, let's go back and redig the old wells. And furthermore, Isaac says, when we redig these old wells, we're going to put the old names back on them too. We're going to rename these wells. The Philistines have filled them up. They've given the place some other name, some other characteristic, but we'll put back the old names on those wells. Abraham named those wells. Abraham had ideas and testimony, and he put the names there. And beloved, as I think today of the Protestant Reformation, and I think of 450 years ago, when this monk of the Roman Catholic Church by the name of Luther was called over to Wittenberg, and he was called before the council, and he was asked to recant, and they stacked there the books which this man had written, He had written, he had written, and he had written against the indulgences. He'd written against all the Roman Catholic Church had done to obscure and to cover up first the justification by faith which he came to see in Romans and in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. And second, his appeal solely to the authority of the word. Martin Luther stood there before that diet in Worms and when they asked him, If he would recant, he said, will you give me 24 hours before I make my statement? And they gave this monk 24 hours. And when he came back at the close of the 24 hours, he stood before that diet with great dignity, with great poise over the night. Over that time, Martin Luther had been out and he'd stood before the king of kings And his heart was firm in his commitment to justification by faith. 
And when they asked him, will you recant? Will you recant in these books? And they were burning these books even out through the province before he ever got to Worms to be put on trial. And he stood and he said three things. He said, there are some things in my writings. He said, which are just references of mine to things about us. He said, I can make mistakes. He says, I'm fallible. And he says, anything like that, he says, why? He says, that's a matter of indifference to me. But he says, there are other things in my writings which involved interpretations of scripture. He says, I may be mistaken in some of these. He says, I'm still fallible. But he says, in my writings, there is contained the word of God and the message of salvation by faith, not by works. And he says, I will never recant anything that I have written which holds up the word of God. That was the testimony of Luther when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. I'll not change a single word of anything that bears testimony to this blessed book. Of course, Martin Luther was condemned. Martin Luther went in and he redug the wells. He opened up the wells of Abraham, the wells of faith, and he went back in, and as a result of that single monk stand for the truth, beloved. God gave the blessings of liberty to the souls of men. No longer was the soul of a man to be bound by the decrees of a church. No longer was the pardon of sin to be conditioned by a confession or by an indulgence. No longer was the faith which must abide in the heart of a man in any way to be conditioned by the power of earthly prelates. Luther liberated the soul of the believer, for we are accountable to God. And in that glorious concept of our accountability to Almighty God, has come the Protestant freedom and with it the free concepts which we have in a society like ours where everybody must be free to serve God and not serve the church or serve the state or serve anybody else. Each of us shall give an account of himself directly to God. That was 450 years ago when the wells well redux. Do you know, beloved, that in our lifetime, this century, have the Protestant churches been teaching their people about Luther? That whole realm of struggle and heritage has just become a vacuum. Nobody ever preaches about it. Nobody ever talks about it. It's just left there. And now we're witnessing a complete twist, a complete change which is developing, which I do want to speak about. But in the second place, as we look at this story in the 26th chapter of Genesis, Isaac called these wells by their old names. And then they went out and began to dig new wells. 
And when they dug these new wells, the Philistines came in to challenge them. The Philistines came in to <clears throat> cause a struggle. And if you'll notice, please, in verse 20, And the herdsmen of Gerar <clears throat> did strive with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. Then he called the name of the well Isaac, which means, beloved, contention. Contention. Beloved, what Isaac's herdmen ought to have done at this point, had they been consistent, was to have driven the herdsmen of the Philistines away. But instead, they gave ground. And the name of the place became known as Isaac. Contention. The Philistines won the battle at Isaac. They should never have been permitted to win the battle at Isaac. The herdsmen of Isaac should have said, We have dug this well. This is our well. You filled up all the other wells that Abraham made. We've already cleaned them up. You've already caused us a lot of mischief. And we're not going to sit around here and permit you to take the new well that we've just dug. You get out of here. That's what they should have told them. But they didn't. They let them have the well. And it became known as the well of contention. And in that contention, the Philistines won. All right, look at the next one. And they digged another well, verse 21, and strove for that one also. And he called the name of it Sitna. And that means hatred. The fighting must have been even more fierce over that well. Not just a matter of contention, but you saw the hatred of the Philistines. You saw the determination of the Philistines. We're not going to let you dig any wells around here as long as we can have anything to say about it. And so Isaac yielded a second time, and his herdsmen moved out. And they let the Philistines have that well, and it became a well of hatred. Beloved, I'm laying down for you today some spiritual principles that are in the Word of God. And I want you to see them. Every time the devil gets a victory over you, it's easier for them to get a victory the second time and the third time. And we have to put on an armor so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And we don't give ground to the devil and his enemies. We're not that kind of people. We've been redeemed. We're the children of God. We have the power of God in our behalf. And God wants us to stand. And I believe with all my heart that if Isaac's herdsmen, under the direction of Isaac, had been told to drive the Philistines out and to protect the wells that you labored on and that you built, those wells would have had different names. But if you will retreat, the devil will drive you out. The principle of the scripture is you resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you may know that your pastor in the present conflict in which we're engaged in our country, 
with the Federal Communications Commission. Our whole approach is not merely to stand up in this moment of crisis, but to take the initiative, to take the offensive, to go out and inform and expose and alert the people. And that's what's happening right now. As your pastor goes around like I did out in California on Friday and Saturday nights to tell the people these things. And all in the world you need to do is to take a letter like this one from WFAX down in Washington, D.C. at Falls Church, Virginia. WFAX now understands that if personal attacks are made during your broadcast, and this is addressed to me, this station will be liable for serious consequences. Accordingly, we must require that no statement be made by you which might be considered by the FCC as a personal attack on a group or an individual. And you just get up and read to a congregation, it's now required that no statement be made by you on the radio that might be considered by the FCC. And it throws this whole thing over into this nebulous, unknown area as to what the mind of the FCC may be on a given purpose, on a given subject. And the moment the people begin to realize that we've got censorship in this area and that the pulpits, the preachers in the pulpit are being censored by what they can say, Believe me, beloved, the people are beginning to wake up. Now, if I just sit back and say, well, it's too bad. The forces are against us. Let them have that. Well, we'll hold the next line of defense if we get into a battle. They'd take the well, and they'd call it by some name, which would mean a great victory to them. But we're not going to let them have the wells that have been digged by our fathers. We're not going to let them take the wells that we ourselves have digged. We're going to resist them. And in that resistance, God Almighty will undertake for his people in an hour like this. There are spiritual principles here. There are principles here of the progress and the advance of evil. And there are principles here of the position of testimony which God's people should maintain for the truth. But in this passage, you're seeing the retreat, the surrender, the, the backing away. And when you get to the end of it, Esau marries the daughter of a Hittite. I know that you people have always felt, we all have, that Rehoboth is a beautiful name. And uh, they did dig a well and the Philistines left him alone. So they said, this is Rehoboth. For now the Lord hath made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, all in the world they did was to get so far away that the Philistines left him alone. They called it Rehoboth. There was room for them. That's what it means. Now, the people listening to me down at Rehoboth, don't take offense at this, please. But I want you to know that this is the principle that's involved. They just simply left the enemy have the territory he wanted. And they went off over here and finally dug a well. They didn't bother them, so they said, it's Rehoboth. And here the Lord's made room for us. The Lord would have made room for us back at these other wells if they just stood and fought. The Lord would have taken care of. The Philistines have never been the friends of the people of God. And the Philistines will never be the friends of the people of God. The Philistines are dedicated to Baal. They're dedicated to another God. They're dedicated to another purpose. 
And you can't join Baal and God together and get anything good out of it. It's impossible. All right, let's look at the third problem. Look a little further in this 26th chapter. Down in verse 26. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar. And then we have the names of his captains. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, saying, Seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? My, the weakness of Isaac. Isaac said, You've come to me, and you hate me. You're going to do something else to me now? What are you going to do to me now? And you sent me away. Imagine the Philistines sending Isaac away. Imagine the Philistines sending me away from any place. Imagine the Philistines sending you away from any place. Look what Isaac said. Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you. How meek. He's ready for any kind of a peace treaty you want to propose. Oh, beloved, this spirit in Isaac, see it, see it. It's a spirit of weakness. It's a spirit of fear. And we're not to be afraid of the faces of men. That brings a snare. And Isaac gets into a snare. And as a result of his snare and his weakness here, his son Esau goes over here and marries a Hittite girl. And then he and his wife have grief of mind over it all. That's what happened. And they said, we saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. Oh, Isaac, you must understand that we believe now that God's with you. I tell you, beloved, how in the world could they say that? When they fought over this well and Isaac retreated. And they fought over the next well and Isaac retreated. And then they came to Isaac and said, what are you coming here seeing you hate me and I, you've driven me out? Is that a sign that the Lord is with them? No, that's a sign that he's weak. That's the sign that he's running away from the Philistines. That's the sign that he's giving ground to the enemies of Abraham. Those who went in and filled up the wells of Abraham. And what I want you to see at this point, there are features and elements in Isaac. There's a good element and then there's the weak element. Both of these are involved in the same person in the same area. Yes, he wanted the old wells redug. He wanted the old names put back on top of them. And that was good. That was excellent. But at the same time, there was this weakness of retreat and fleeing from the enemy. And both of these elements were in Isaac. And it's this latter element, the weakness in Isaac, that has its great damaging effect and its permanent effect in the life of his family. And there are noble things about us all. There are glorious things about us all. We all have the concepts that we must redig the wells. But at the same time, while we have these ideals and while we dream about the things that we had 10 years ago and the things that we had 30 years ago and while we talk about these things and we're all for them, the spirit of running away from the Philistines begins to manifest itself. The spirit of saying, now the Philistines aren't said bad people. What do you think Isaac must have felt? Look at this statement. 
And they said, We saw certainly the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there now be an oath betwixt us. Let there be peace among us. Let us make a covenant with thee. And here comes the Philistines to make a covenant with Isaac. It's the worst thing in the world he could ever do is now make a covenant with these who are the enemies of the faith and the enemies of the things that Abraham stood for. And the moment you make a covenant and have this kind of peace, then it is the young people begin to move on out and there's no differences of any kind and you've got to break down. And when you get the breakdown, Esau marries the daughter of a Hittite. That's the way it comes. That's the way it always is happening. And we have it operating in the life of Isaac and of Rebekah. Let me turn again to that great passage in Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah said unto the children of Israel. He speaks to them. He said, amend your ways. He says, ye trust in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You just praise the temple. You're all for your great church. You're all for this great thing that you have here. But you go over here to the heights of Baal. And there amidst the groves of Baal, you join hands and you worship with the Baalites as they turn to the gods of the heavens and worship the stars and worship the creatures that God has made. And then you turn from your communion with Baal and come back to the house of God and you say, we have been delivered to be this broad-minded. We have been delivered to commit all these abominations. And beloved, the Christian today has never been delivered for any compromise with the enemies of the gospel. And it was that that Martin Luther saw in that great day when there in the darkness of Europe God spoke to him out of the scriptures. He went into this library and saw this book in Latin. He says, what is it? And they says, it's a Bible. And he took down this Latin Bible and then he began to read it for himself. And it was the reading of the Bible in Latin that opened the eyes of this reformer, Martin Luther. And then he began to write and write and write. And he lectured to his students as he was asked to teach there in the university. And his whole emphasis was upon that your soul is delivered from all the consequences of sin simply on the basis of faith and by the grace of God. Sola Scriptura, that was Luther. Only Scripture only faith, only grace. And because there was no compromise with the Philistines, because there was no compromises of any kinds, he stood and the message he had found its way throughout all of Saxony, throughout all of, uh, of Germany, and then it found its way over into France, and it's made its way over into Scotland and into England, and out of that came the great liberating force which brought us the Protestant Reformation and 400 years of blessing, and out of that came the pilgrimage to the New World, and the Puritans came standing for these principles, and you and I are inheritors of the blessings of these great concepts today on this 450th anniversary. This week's issue of Time magazine in its religious section discusses the celebrations of the Reformation today and they refer to a number of instances in which they're now saying that it used to be that the celebration of the Lutheran anniversary was a divisive event. But now it has become a unifying event. 
And instead of the emphasis being as of old upon these things that divided the church, now those who would remember Luther, they're holding him up as a great leader of peace and the reunion of the church. And right this very minute, over this nation and around this land, Luther's name is being taken in vain. Luther's name is being used to support the exact opposite for which Martin Luther stood and suffered and died. And as I mentioned to you earlier, the 450th anniversary of this great Reformation Day is to be observed in East Germany, communist territory. And the communist government of East Germany set up the committee in order to arrange for the celebration. And the communist government asked the churchmen of the West, of West Germany, West Berlin, to provide a list. Some 450 clergymen were presented from the West, from Germany, from the United States, from all over the world. And the communist government selected only 80 of these persons to whom they would give visas to permit them to come into Wittenberg in communist territory for this celebration. And in choosing these 80 men who would be permitted to go, they said there are two conditions. First, every man who is chosen must accept the independence of East Germany, which is the big political question about East and West Germany. They must accept the communist position on that matter. Second, they must be clergymen who are opposed to the war in Vietnam. And the New York Times on Friday carried a story from East Germany where one of the Lutheran bishops has now resigned everything. He said he cannot be a party in any way to the way in which the communist controlling direction and the committee that's running this thing have brought the 50th anniversary of the revolution in Moscow and the 450th anniversary of Luther's Protestant Reformation together in the same act of celebration. And on the streets of Wittenberg today, you have bunting on every hand. The communist symbols are abroad. And here is the picture of Luther, and here is a picture of Lenin. And they are serving free in the streets, in great kegs and fountains, Luther beer for the Reformation celebration. The communists have moved in to take this historic event, twist it around, and make Luther support something which Luther could never possibly have had anything to do with when it comes to the word of God standing against all these darknesses and all these tyrannies that arise to enslave the minds of men. Did you ever see anything so completely twisted about? And that is the condition which we face today, beloved. Woe unto them that put darkness for light, that call evil good. And it's this warning of the prophets which needs to be sounded on this 450th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Oh, how precious Luther was 
How glorious has been his legacy to us all. And how precious it will be for us to go next week to Worms. And be there by that great cathedral and that diet. To see the monument that they've erected in the square to Luther. And then to hold these meetings for two days, Saturday and Sunday in Worms. Under the standard of the International Council of Christian Churches. Who would have thought that we would have such a privilege as this in these last days. And may God undertake for us in this matter. Now may I tell you one precious little story. Everything we have is in the book. Everything is judged by it. Everything is measured by it. Everything in it delights our souls. And oh, it is so comforting to be in a pulpit like this today. Where I can speak to you people as a pastor. And as one who wants to see these old landmarks maintained. How precious it is. Last Tuesday night when I went down to the airport in Los Angeles to catch a 1.40 a.m. plane to fly north to Seattle. Dr. Lynn Gregord and I were sitting there, got in early, and we were sitting there in one of the seats. And as I frequently do when I'm like that, I just got out my Bible, and I was reading the Bible there after 1 o'clock at the airport, just reading it. A man came in the door. I looked up, and he looked at me, and he passed down. He came back, and he looked at me again. And all of a sudden, he turned and sat down right by me. Sat right down by me. I says, how do you do? He says, how do you do? And I said, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Seattle. And I said, uh, what's your faith? He says, I'm Protestant. And I says, what you going up to Seattle for? He says, my brother just died. And I'm going to his funeral. He says, I saw you reading. I thought it was the Bible you had. I says, that's right, son. I got the Bible. And I says, how about your brother? Did he know the Lord? Well, he said he has a rhythmic, some kind of paralysis, and he was only 40 years of age, and he said he suffered so. He says, it's a good thing I guess he's gone, but he says, oh, he suffered so, and he had such a nice faith. And I says, do you think he's with the Lord? Yes, he says, I think he is. And I said, son, do you believe in the Lord? Well, yes, I do, but I haven't been living up to it. And I says, wait a minute, let's read the Bible. And we sat in the Los Angeles airport. Lynn Gray stood right there, and I sat here, and I just turned to passage after passage and read that fellow the Bible. And I saw his heart open. I saw the tears come down his cheeks. He said, oh, he says, this is God. This is God. Then I explained to him the resurrection. You know, I talk to him just like I talk to you people when I come to your house when someone's been taken. We just read Thessalonians and we read Philippians and we read uh, 1 Corinthians. And I just read it. And I said, young man, do you believe this? He says, yes, I believe it. But he says, you know, it's so nice to hear it. Pretty soon they rang the bell. Flight so-and-so ready to go. And I looked at him and I said, son, how about a word of prayer? He said, oh, yeah. And we bowed our heads while the people were marching through the gate and going on the plane. We bowed there and we prayed and he took out his handkerchief and wiped his eyes. He says, thank you. He says, the Lord sent you here. And I says, that's right, young man. The Lord sent me here. I was sitting in an airport. He's reading the Bible. 
had it open there. After one o'clock in the morning, he came in, walked around and saw me, came and sat down by me. And I said, what is your Protestant, but I'm not working at it. And then I read the scriptures to him. And beloved, this is what Martin Luther said would bless your souls. Not the church, not the popes, not the decrees of councils, but the simple preaching of the word of God. That's it. And don't make your compromises with the Philistines. If you do, your sons and daughters are apt to marry the Hittites. That's what happened. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for the power of the word. We thank thee for this great anniversary in the life of this church. We thank thee that our hearts are moved. And oh, how we would be loyal to the faith today. And deliver us from making any covenants with the Philistines that break down the barriers and the lines which have to be established between the people of God and the enemies of our Lord. God, may we be a righteous people and may we protect our children in all these matters. For Christ's sake, amen. Now let's stand and sing Luther's hymn, 122, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. <clears throat>